know the term ecclesiology, so the doctrine of the church. Um, and my first section here is the negative part of this, and that is we've kind of gotten a bad ecclesiology. Uh, that in some way the church has failed to be the church. Uh, the way we could ask this is, how did Christians become useless? Uh, how did we cease to be salt and light uh, very often? And I don't mean to uh, uh, point to anything particular, but one might think of the recent election uh, the divisions that occurred, and just sort of the uh, that Christianity cannot mean too much uh, for people, uh, I think, in light of this. But the the way to begin to get an understanding or a proper understanding of our ecclesiology is to recognize we cannot disconnect what Israel was from what the church is, and recognize that the church is the fulfillment of the hopes of Israel. And the reason that will make a difference is uh, because Israel is clearly a socio-cultural, political, economic uh, entity, right? Is the church a socio-cultural, political, economic entity? I think it is. But if you ask that question of many Christians today, is the church a politic? They'd say, oh no, as Christians we don't do politics. Or we don't, you know, the church and the state or the church and politics, you know, are separate. But when you say Jesus is Lord think here, you know, I was in Japan for many years, and during the uh, Tokugawa period in Japan, uh, the penalty for saying Jesus is Lord was death, because the shogun is Lord. And think of first century Rome. If you say Jesus is Lord, was that a political statement? Of course it was a political statement. That's why Christians were persecuted. If it wasn't a political statement, and there were there was room in Rome for a cultus privatus for a religion you know that you could practice privately and be of no offense to the ruling authorities but that was not what the early church was choosing to do that in coming out and saying Jesus was lord it was a direct challenge to the powers that be and the early Christians were willing to sacrifice themselves, their children, their families uh, for that statement. So it wasn't a private statement, it was a public statement. So part of what is going to happen uh, if we maintain the idea that the church is the fulfillment of what Israel it was meant to be, if Christ is true Israel and the church is the fulfillment of that, we're going to say that the church then too is a politic. It too is an economic system. That is, we're not just co-opted by the economies of whatever culture we happen to be a part of, but uh, in the church we practice a, a giving and uh, you know a generosity that at least in the first church resembled something like a communal 
complete communal, I don't know that we should call it communist, but it, you know, in that it was a complete sharing, but at least we need to recognize that we're not controlled by the economies of the world. On the other hand, what has happened, and, and the history of this is fairly complicated, and I'm not going to tell it, I'm just going to hit some high points. What has happened is that we've made the church something other than a socio-political cultural entity. We've imagined that the church in some way uh, is uh, able to fit into a kind of, you know, being like a kind of private club or a uh, something that in some way would be no challenge or would not commit us to any political, social, or economic system. I think that's a profound misunderstanding. Um, so you could the easy way to see this is you know the church prior to Constantine and the church after Constantine. That prior to Constantine, the church you know they considered themselves a public cultus, and the word they did not have our word culture, but the idea is that you know what we call culture is what they were saying. Just as the Jews were an, a, a culture unto themselves, so too the Christians thought of themselves in the same way. And clearly that that culture, that people, that kingdom, stood over and against the kingdom of Rome. You know, Caesar is Lord or Christ is Lord. Now you might think, well... Oh, we could work that out, can't we? You know, let's 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 talk. You know, well, no. What Caesar meant when he said that he is Lord is not. He meant what Jesus meant when he said he's Lord. That Caesar was claiming to be Prince of Peace, Lord and God. Those that was actual language that Caesar Augustus used. And so with the Constantinian shift, everybody understands that Constantine, you know, and this is a kind of simplification, you know, I'm sure it's a much more prolonged process and more complicated, but the easy way to identify it is that when Emperor Constantine converts to Christianity and he makes Christianity part of the state religion, uh, that the church then in some way was co-opted by state purposes. Now, you guys may not know this, but I was a military man, right? I was an army chaplain for uh, 90 days. <laughs> um, and as a, I, I had not come to an understanding, the understanding that I'm telling you today. I, I had kind of a, simplistic, vague understanding of how church and state might work. But even there, with even with my simple-minded, you know, 20-year-old or mid-20 understanding, um, I did feel the discomfort of the wearing the crosses on a military uniform. And what you immediately get the sense of is that the way that the chaplains are used, or the way that the chaplaincy functions very often, is a kind of justification in the name of God for the state purposes that are being worked out in the military. Um, that is, you can't be an army chaplain and say, oh, I don't agree with 
you know, you, you, you can't be a nonviolent chaplain or even to disagree with the particular policies of your government. And so that situation sort of describes the church itself, that as the church then has been co-opted by the state, there is the sense that the church has become taken up a role much you know similar to a chaplain in the army uh, that it just is there to kind of uh, you know not as a, a force uh, to shape or over and against uh, but it's been co-opted or it has become a kind of private club oh well you know what I believe privately uh, is something different than what should be carried out in the public sphere. There is a kind of Gnostic temptation here, and that's the great temptation in the church today to say, well, you know, yeah, my, my, my religion, my Christianity has to do with, you know, when I die, my soul will go to heaven. And, and, uh, but that doesn't have anything to do with this world and politics. That's the way that by the way, every religion will tend to function, whether it's Buddhism, Hinduism, that the religion is given the sphere of the spiritual and the state then is given the sphere of embodiment. And in some way, of course, what's happening is the religion is always put at the service of the state. Um, if you think, you know, this, this is the case with uh, Buddhist thought in Japan. Buddhism is not in any way resistant to, or and was not resistant to militaristic forces leading up to World War II. Uh, and so the kind of Gnostic temptation is to, in some way, de-emphasize embodiment. On the other hand, if once we recognize, oh, in Christianity we're saved by resurrection embodiment, that it is to be an embodied religion, then we, we get the idea that uh, that means, what it means to be embodied is, well, we do life together. We practice a, uh, a, a, an understanding that is perhaps going to be a challenge to state purposes and is an alternative. Uh, culture. This is Richard Niebuhr. You know, Richard Niebuhr, he comes up with, uh, he was an early, uh, you know, in the, the uh, 20th century came up with five different relationships of Christ and culture. Christ, uh, you know, against culture, Christ for culture, Christ you know, in and through culture. He came up with all of these different alternatives, but the one thing he did not say is Christ is culture. Christ is a culture. And I think that's the correct understanding that he missed and that 20th century liberals or, or even Protestant conservatives missed, uh, is that as the church, uh, we then are a people, a kingdom, a city, uh, that is an entity. Certainly we cannot separate ourselves completely. It's not to say that. But uh, we are a, a, a people that have a unique, unique identity wherever we are, and that our identity as a people is not ethnic. In other words, 
uh, we will let people of any ethnic identity can join this group here. Is, you know, we even let Trent in. Uh, I don't know why I'm always being. <laughs> uh, you know, that, that uh, we can be Japanese, Hmong, African, but I'm closer to my brother who is from these different ethnic groups than I am to my American, you know, being part of the same nation state. There's a long history to this, you know, American transcendentalism perhaps played into this. Did everybody read uh, Walden Pond, you know, Ralph Waldo Emerson, kind of the idea of a, an otherworldly Christianity that, div you know, is a kind of divinity of, uh, I think it all turns out to be a sort of escapist understanding. The other, and then what has happened as a result is with a Constantinian understanding, there's a complete, there's the, the notion that the nation, in other words, if we don't identify the church as God's kingdom, God's people, God's city, God's culture, then what has happened is we identify and we say, well, America is a Christian nation, as if what saves us or the way that God is working primarily is in and through the nation state. And so there's a tendency to completely lose the unique identity uh, of being a Christian. So the way I think that we're going to get back to an understanding of the unique identity that we have in Christ is to say, no, Christ is a culture. The church is a culture unto itself. Uh, and Christ is the foundation of this new people. And then we could go through the elements that constitute a culture. You know, I lived in Japan for 20 years. What's one of the key factors in a culture? Well, probably the language. You know, that we... In Japan, if you... It, it is a requirement that you have a Japanese name and that you're able to speak the Japanese language, and, and of course, unless you're born there and become, you know, you're born to Japanese parents, but any, everybody has to have those two things, and that is then definitive of what it means to be Japanese. That's not unusual, that most ethnic groups, most tribal groups, identify themselves primarily according to language, a word, as Christians, do we have a unique language? Yeah, we're all... <laughs> yeah, and probably a little southern twang there will, you know. Uh, American, yeah. Uh, well, Christ is the word, right? So not in the sense that we all speak the same uh, language, but in the sense that we're unified in the way that languages usually unify people, Christ as the word unifies us. Uh, and that really does function because, of course, what's happening in part, by the way, the whole you know, Japanese focus upon uh, language is actually an imitation of a British focus on English. The Japanese were f infatuated with the uh, you know, imperial British ways and, and, and and becoming a colonial power themselves, 
they took up the same sort of thing. Uh, that we Japanese have a unique language. It even shapes our brains, you know, and, and our life. And, uh, well, I think that's usually true, that people imagine that we are the people, and the sign of the being the people is the, the language. But, of course, that's a, a kind of false understanding, because language turns out to always be a hybrid of several things. You know, think of English. How did where did English come from? Well, it's everybody knows it's uh, German, French, Latin. What other you know? It's a conglomerate of languages. And to say, oh well, I speak English and I'm unique. Uh, well, that's that's inherently false because the language itself is a hybrid. But I would say that's always the case that. To imagine that you can make the language your foundation when we're talking about ordinary human language is a false understanding. But Christ is the foundation. Christ as the true word is, uh, I think, the fulfillment of that false. In other words, here is the truth. The other sense, of course, is that there is usually some sort of physical boundary. Uh, you know, the, the body of the nation or the you know, in some way, that's often pictured as a king, or the chief, or the uh, the president, or it may be the geographical boundaries. But what we're saying is, well, the body of Christ is definitive of who we are. And then we could go right on through. You know, you could you could multiply this. Do we do government different? You know, oh yeah, it's a new form of government. What would be the central governing principle? You know, we could name several things. Mercy, forgiveness, love. Uh, we eat, you know, food's important, right? Don't want to leave food out. That's in Japan, food is a biggie. Uh, but so too, it is, how do we eat differently? Well, Jesus ate with sinners. Jesus ate with those who normally would be shunned. As Alexander Campbell says, we neither invite nor debar, but it's the Lord's Supper. So on Tuesday nights, when we have a meal, everybody can come. We don't we don't exclude anybody, uh, because even though it's occurring in the carpenter's house, uh, yeah, he's the carpenter is the host, right? That it's Jesus' supper, it's the Lord's supper. We're just renting. Right, uh, that uh, so we eat differently in the sense not that we of the kind of food particularly, but the kind of fellowship that is involved in that. I think we could we could multiply that, but you get the idea that all of the elements that constitute a culture are to be here for us, and so we are to take these things that seriously. That is that. Is it okay to do identity through culture? Well, let me tell you, there's really no other way to do it. Don't, don't get the idea that, that you have a choice in this. Uh, because it is through culture that we are constituted as human beings, right? The place, the family, the country that we were born is very much formative of who we are. We're not disclaiming that as Christians. No, we're acknowledging that. But we're saying that the body of Christ constitutes us as a different kind of person.
and that it's only in the body of Christ, it's only in the church that we can be reconstituted. Um, so, what I would say is that there, the church is Israel today. And this is, I'm not just saying this, actually Paul says this in Galatians. Um, that foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel before and to Abraham saying, all the nations shall be blessed in you. So then those who are uh, of the faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer, for as many as are the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is not by, abide by all these things written in the book of the law. Who are the true children of Abraham? Paul says that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might, this is Galatians 3, 8, 14, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Paul says this in several places. He says, Christians are true Jews. Here is true Israel. So the plan was never to abandon. You know, this is a kind of, you know, the term supersessionism or in some way to get rid of uh, and make a divide between the church and Israel. Uh, no, that's not the point. The point is that Israel is completed. Uh, that the plan was not to abandon the Jews, but to expand the kingdom of God to include the Gentiles to form the church. That's almost exactly what Ephesians 1, 3 to 11 is describing. So Israel's exclusive status was a temporary expedient, right? Israel came to prepare the world for Christ. We understand who Christ is only in the, with the background of the Old Testament. That is, the revelation that we have in Christ is a revelation that is comprehended in many ways. We could spend a whole class just talking about how we needed a Jewish comprehension of things to even recognize the Messiah. Uh, the whole idea of a messianic hope, of a deliverer, of an enslavement, of the concept of holiness, was all there in continuity with, with Israel. Uh, and so the basis of this continuity is God's saving plan. This is Romans 4, 3, Romans 9, 6, based on faith. It is not as though the word of God has failed, Paul says, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. That is, he's saying true Jews uh, are not necessarily those people who are ethnically connected to Abraham. Through Isaac, your, your descendants will be named. That is not the children of the flesh who are God, but the children of the promise. And the promise, then, is the promise based on faith. Once we get this straight, I think this changes up everything. We're saying that we're saved through the church, right? Let me state it in a different way. Can you be saved apart from the body of Christ? That's the way you're saved, right? You're saved by being incorporated into the body of Christ. Now, maybe you're, you're sitting here 
thinking, wait a minute, what does he mean by saved? Oh, I just mean what the New Testament means, a practical salvation. That is, that you put aside the works of unrighteousness and put on the works of righteousness. That you put on Christ. That salvation, then, is uh, the, you know, it is the practices that are pictured in the New Testament. So when I say the word salvation, don't think going to heaven when you die. I'm not excluding that. But actually, there's that's not the focus of the conversation in the New Testament. And even when we talk about the final salvation, what is the f- picture of final salvation in the Bible? It's the heavenly Jerusalem coming to the new earth so, in fact, it's not dying and going to heaven that is the final salvation. It's heaven coming to earth and culminating then in this new new Jerusalem, this new city. So, the early Christians, like the Jews, saw themselves as embodying a national, social, political way of life. And when the Jews, you know, because in a sense the early Christians did not in any way differentiate themselves from Israel. Most of them, you know, uh, there was a period when there was only Jews. Um, Israel's story was their story. That is, God is our deliverer. And they did not psychologize it like I described in the beginning, you know, or etherealize it. Uh, they rather thought that, no, this is a real-world deliverance from bondage, from oppression. Uh, You know, think here of uh, if Moses had come to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, well, Moses, let's talk about this. Do you mean mentally psychologically spiritually that is will they continue to make bricks I think if Moses had said well yeah I guess that's okay it's a psychological liberation I think Pharaoh would have said oh good idea Moses you're free now of course everybody needs to show up to make bricks tomorrow but in your heads you just be as free as you want to be That's not, that. by the way, if you haven't read the Old Testament lately, that's not what happened, right? Uh, the, uh, the liberation of Israel from Egypt was Im- a literal, embodied, holistic liberation. Now, I don't, I don't mean to in any way take away, uh, take away from the psychological aspect of this, but I think is what has happened is we've divided. We imagine, oh, there's what's in my head and there's what you know is out there. And what I would say is, no, the way you get to the deep psychological aspect of any person is to recognize that none of us are uh, isolated and that our, you know, the deep grammar of our psyche is not something that has taken place apart from the socio-cultural, you know, or familial, the family that 
has engendered us. That is, the deep psyche and the environment that we are a part of are not two separate things. So again, we just have to pause here a minute and say, are you saved? And so what we often think of is, well, we think in some sort of split. But once we get the idea that, no, what it means to be saved is to enter a different culture, a different people, and that's inclusive of a literal freedom from oppression, but that also then is the way that I think we are freed psychologically, that we're freed mentally, and those two things are not separate realms. I don't think you can uh, continue to make bricks and be free in your head. I don't think that would mean very much. Think here of Paul and Onesimus, you know, in the letter to Philemon. Could Philemon continue to treat Onesimus as a piece of property, a, a slave, and also call him a brother in Christ? Well, if he had said to Onesimus, you know, brother, it's we're brothers mentally. You can still be my slave. I can still own your body, but you're free mentally. No, that's not the way it works. Paul says, this is your brother in Christ. And you need to recognize that. And so there is then the departure from the kind of oppression, most overt you know, in slavery, but any kind of system of oppression uh, is part of the freedom uh, that is given to us in Christ. As N.T. Wright has put this, no first century Jew could imagine that the worship of their God and the organization of human society were matters related only at a tangent. That is, that who God is, think of the Old Testament, means coming out of the nations, forming an alternative people, an alternative economy. What's the economy of the Jews? Well, it's the strangest economy in the world. It's built on jubilee. It's built upon Sabbath. You know what jubilee is. Somebody, it's what is it, every 50 years that everything reverts back? Is that right, Dalton? Um, Now, whether they actually practiced that, that was the idea. And so when Jesus comes, he says, I proclaim unto you the year of jubilee has arrived. That is, that here is a people, a kingdom, a culture, that is in fact going to put into practice and more uh, the ideas that were there in Israel. So Israel is a political entity born of social, not merely psychological rebellion. And uh, this involved them in a kind of departure from the most powerful empire in the world this should resonate with you a little bit here we are living in the most powerful empire in the world and our tendency will to be to continue to make bricks and not to recognize we need to come out we need to identify ourselves not on the basis of human empires but on the basis of the culture of Christ. So, you know, think of the Jews, the way the Jews divided themselves up. 
even the followers of Jesus, that you had zealots, you know, the most radical. Uh, you had uh, Pharisees. You had tax collectors. You know, tax collectors were kind of like the fifth columnists. They're, they're the traitors. And yet all of these people were among the followers that Jesus brought together precisely He's not saying, oh, you guys, you know, you go ahead and practice your politics as is. I'm not changing that up. No, they all had to abandon the political uh, forms that they had in order to become followers of Jesus. So the question, clearly for them, what it might mean to be a good and loyal Jew, it certainly had pressing social, economic, and political dimensions, and Jesus directly addresses that and fulfills that. Now he may fulfill it in a way they were not expecting, but nonetheless it is an embodied fulfillment of uh, what it means to be a culture, a people, a society. So I'm afraid that Christianity, as it's now sometimes psychologized, and this happens on both sides of the spectrum. You know, this is, this is theological liberalism, but it's also evangelicalism. Um, I don't think this would make any sense at all to first century Christians or first century Palestinian Jews. That would make as much sense as Moses saying to Pharaoh, oh yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll just be free in our heads. No, that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is a real world freedom. Again, let me quote right. The pressing needs of most Jews of the period had to do with liberation from oppression, from debt, from Rome. The hope of Israel was not for disembodied bliss after death, but for a national liberation that would fulfill the expectations uh, aroused by the memory and regular celebration of the Exodus. Hope focused on the coming of the kingdom of Israel's God. They really wanted freedom from oppression from Rome, freedom from oppression from the kingdoms of this world. Jesus in no way relieved or changed that expectation. He fulfilled that expectation. The church is the enduring people, the enduring kingdom. Rome has fallen. Babylon is gone. Persia, you know, is no more. And so the kingdoms of this world are continually fading before our eyes. And that should be our understanding of the political situations that surround us. But what we have in Christ and the kingdom of God is that we are an enduring people. We then, uh, this is a kingdom that shall not fade. Not because we're all going to die and go to heaven, but because we constitute an alternative people, an alternative culture. Amazing. So it's not that we're not going to continue to be oppressed by the outside world. We're just, as if God's people, aren't going to oppress one another. That doesn't mean that we might not 
be persecuted, as it says we will be. Yeah, I think this is, you know, think here of Onesimus. Uh, if Did he have a people or a group that he could come to, and they would say, you're not a slave, you're a brother. Think of, you know, the issue of women today. Is there a group of people where we can come into this group of people and we acknowledge that as a woman, you are of equal value? Think of this in terms of, you know, you can do it. In other words, if there is no place or people that we can go to that will love us and acknowledge us as being valuable, then we are cast upon the oppressive situation of the cultures that we are a part of. And by default, those cultures define us in the impressive manner that they do. And by the way, it doesn't matter if you're the slave or the master. These systems are always oppressive. You know, uh, that in some way, the way that the cultures of this world identify us will, will distort us. They will, they, are, they will misshape even our identity. So I think that step one is know that in the church, whether you're, you know, uh, uh, think of the slavery situation in America, the most hostile situation to somebody, and yet that was the way that the black church functioned for many slaves, they could come together and say, we understand I'm a, I'm a child of God. You can't own me. And there were many places and people that acknowledged that. And so, yes, the oppressive systems of this world will continue, but the church then is to be a place where those oppressive systems are not definitive of our identity of who we are. Does that does that hit it? Yeah, yeah. We just have to know that. Yeah, it doesn't mean that we're not being oppressed anymore, or that we might not have to interact with oppressive systems in the world, but it's not how we're identified or valued. But the difficult thing is uh, when the church isn't available to people, and therefore that's how they're identified within those oppressive systems. Yeah, and and, you know, the the question is that Maybe by church we need to, to say an authentic church, an authentic c- community. So I think what I've just said also then begins to clarify what this authentic community might look like. Is it an authentic community? Is it an authentic you know, part of the body of Christ where some continue to be oppressed? where there may, in fact, be second-class citizens, where there is a hierarchy of value. I think that that may be signs that we're not dealing with the body of Christ, but the inventions and you know, constitutions of man. That in the body of Christ, there is, there is not to be that kind of oppressive hierarchical understanding. 
I don't know how we do, you know, if there, if, if, at a very basic gut level. If there's nobody that loves you for who you are unconditionally, but they love you because of what you bring to the table, I don't think you're doing church. Uh, and I'm afraid that too often the church has, you know, what we call the church has been so co-opted by the principalities and powers that just the capacity for this simple agape love is in some way missing because there is always the prejudices that we bring uh, that would necessarily be exclusionary or oppressive to some people. So again, think here of how we do identity. We always do identity uh, as a in a plurality of persons, right? We are, we, you know, we're not really constituted individually. We are shaped and formed, and uh, that's what it means. Part of what it means to be embodied. In other words, when we're saying embodied, we're not saying, "Oh, your little green man that is your soul is in your head there somewhere." You know, like the men in black when they shoot the two jewelers, and the little green men are in there running the machine. What it means to be embodied is know that you are inseparable from embodiment. Not meaning just this particular body, but then also by extension, uh, the people, the place that you're embodied in. (coughs) You were telling me today, Maisie, that the skin is your largest organ. Right? Well, there is the sense then that uh, maybe culture is an extension of that organ. That uh, in Japan we have a word called skinship. Uh, that we're linked to other people by our skin, uh, by the people that we associate with. I think that's a good Christian idea. <coughs> that we're shaped as persons by those, by the associations we have. So. Uh, the way that we are going to then escape the principalities and powers, the oppressions that would in some way uh, skew who we are, is that we have a group of people that are truly an authentic body of Christ. That's the gospel. The very word gospel means a, a public, you know, this was the word used when the Roman emperor is in some way that is going to take the throne. The gospel, the good news is there's a new emperor on the throne. So the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are saying there's a new emperor, there's a new king. And it means precisely that, that this is a challenge to the public, you know, work, the, uh, you know. So the language of liturgy, well, that has to do with public work. Uh, ecclesia you've all read you know what the, what was the original ecclesia was a town meeting this is the town meeting of this particular people uh, so Christians were not you know there there was as I said this I begin this there was this idea of, of people being able to practice their particular religion in Rome Rome was very generous in that way 
you just go ahead and practice your religions. We don't care. But of course, step one is make sure that your religion in some no way subverts bowing your knee to Caesar. And any religious group, uh, you know, that did not bow the knee to Caesar was considered subversive. That's precisely why Christianity was a persecuted group. Because they were saying, well, no, publicly and privately we're the same people. We don't bow the knee publicly. I can't do outwardly, you know, I'll just bow my knee physically, but in my head I'm standing up. Uh, Well, that would be nice. You know, I'd be like, uh, I give you, you know, water and food and drink mentally, spiritually, but physically there's no need to share with you, right? You get the point that, no, what it means to be, uh, you know, a Christian is that it is a literal embodiment of an alter of a, of a, uh, a, a, a different economy, a different kind of generosity. So, I think that if we can get this, that first of all, Jesus is true Israel. You know, all that Israel was comes to bear upon him. He's called out of Egypt. He's tempted in the wilderness. He cares for the poor, the stranger. Uh, He establishes the body, uh, or rather the temple, in his body. He is true Israel. He is true temple. He is true priest. He is true king. Those are not disembodied words. Those are all language talking about a literal kingdom, a physical body, not exclusive of the spiritual, but recognizing that the spiritual and the physical are in no way separate. And so when we think even then of how we're saved, it's resurrection. Well, that's the way Jesus and John you know, are picturing uh, the ministry of Jesus and the church. Here is Israel reconstituted. Here is Israel, you know, uh, remade, recreated. Maybe, Miguel, you've got a deep question here. And your question is, uh, (laughs) well, wait a minute. Are you saying that I have to put off my ethnic identity to become a Christian? Are you saying that I'm no longer gendered? No, I'm not saying that. I would say just the opposite. Do you want to be a real, you know, that you're going to take your ethnic identity to the place in which it's fulfilled? So I don't think it's that we shed our identity in some way. We can't do that. We can't, in other words, we can't rid ourselves of our culture. But in fact, I think that we find the place that every culture points us to and the fulfillment of that culture in the culture of the church. And what I, what I mean there is, the danger is that as with Japanese, if you absolutize the language, absolutize, oh, well, I'm Japanese, that's a false identity. But if you take that language and identity and carry it then into the culture of the church and combine it then 
with you know a, uh, a a multiplicity of cultures and peoples, there we find the correct complement uh, to who we are. There's Sharon. Uh, did that? Did that? Yeah, that answered my question. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's the beauty when I ask the question and get to answer it. Both. So, being you know, being whatever you are, if ethnically, uh, I think that it is not that we need to, in some way, completely get rid of that. But recognize that it's always contingent upon and fulfilled.